So there's an activity that probably all of you have watched at some point and probably a lot of you have participated in also. And the way this activity works is that there's an obstacle course and one person has to go through the obstacle course blindfolded while another person guides them. And so the person who's blindfolded, they're completely in the dark. They can't see what's going on. Often they haven't even seen the course before. They weren't able to scout it out in advance. And they have to rely on their partner to give them instructions to make it through. And if you're ever participating, by the way, how many of you have participated in something like this before? All right, a number of you have. It's a lot of fun to do. Um, it's a lot of fun if you've got a good partner. If you're blindfolded, you're probably thinking two things as you're going through this activity. The first thing is that, that you're thinking is, I'm really glad I do have a partner because in the dark, you have uncertainty. You can't tell what's going on. So first of all, you're thinking, I'm really glad I have a partner. And secondly, you're thinking, I really hope I can trust my partner. I really hope my partner is somebody who's going to give me good instructions, who's smart enough to guide me through this, and who cares about me enough not to hang me out to dry when I'm out on this course. Because we all know the darkness brings uncertainty. And by the way, I've heard this called a couple different things, this activity I'm talking about. Um, the thing that I've heard it called most is a trust walk. It's a trust walk because you're walking in darkness and you have to trust your partner to guide you through that. I think in many ways that is a picture of what it's like for us to walk through life. It, it, I don't think it's an accident that there's many passages in the New Testament that refer to the Christian life as a walk. It's a walk of faith. It's a walk with God. It's walking by the Spirit. It's walking in the light. We walk through life with uncertainty and we need God to guide us through this, and we need to trust Him as we do. And what we've been doing this Christmas season as we go through this series called God With Us is we've been basing this all on that passage that you heard read a little bit earlier in the video. The passage where the angel says to Joseph, Mary's going to have a child, and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate the birth of Jesus because it's the arrival of the idea that God is with us. And by the way, it wasn't just that God was with us when Jesus was here on earth in the first century. Jesus, in some of his last words, said, behold, I am with you always. Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of God with us, and we celebrate that God is still with us in Jesus. And then what we've done the last couple of weeks is we've gone through some passages in John chapter 8, which we're going to do again today, and we've gone through some passages that aren't typical Christmas passages, but that let us get into the idea of what is the profound difference that's made in our lives when God is with us. So two weeks ago, we talked about the whole idea of God with us in the storms, when we're dealing with all of the uncertainty and all the, the difficulty of trials. Last week, we talked about God with us in the battle, when we're dealing with the spiritual battle that's going on. And today, we're going to talk about the difference that's made when we experience God with us in the darkness. And so we're going to go through another story in Luke chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 40, and we're going to go through verse 56. And so you can follow along in your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen as it'll be up there as I read it. Luke 8, starting in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. 
that a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this amazing story that we get to walk through today. Thank you for the fact that you've given us your word, that you're not silent. Thank you that we can trust you. And I want to pray for all of us today. And I want to pray especially for anyone here who really feels like they are in a dark time. And I pray that you speak words into their hearts that will allow them to walk forward in trust. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the last couple of weeks, we got to experience Jesus doing the miraculous. He calms a storm out on the sea. And then, then in the story last week, he casts out a legion of demons. And uh, this week, we get two for one. Get two miracles in one story. But the only problem is the miracles seem to come into conflict with each other. They seem to sort of come into competition for how it's all going to work out. And so we're going to walk back through this passage. It'll be pretty simple. We'll just look at the setup for these two miracles. Then we'll look at healing number one and healing number two. But as we get ready for that, I just want to encourage you a couple things that I want to encourage you to have in mind as we walk through these stories. The first is this. I want you just, as we walk through these stories, take in the absolutely staggering power of Jesus. Don't get too familiar with this. This is amazing stuff. Number one, take in the staggering power of Jesus. And number two, I want you to pay attention to the role that faith plays in both of these stories. And because of that, the role that faith plays for all of us when we're in the darkness. So let's look at the setup. We get a little bit of information before it gets to the healings. Verse 40 says, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him and they were all expecting him. 
And what's going on here is if you were here last week, you know that we, we read a story where Jesus had gone across the lake to a Gentile region. And actually, after casting demons out of a demon-possessed man, the residents all asked Jesus to leave. They were afraid of him because of the great power that he'd shown. So they kick him out. But when Jesus gets back to the Jewish people, they all welcome him. They're all excited to see him. And verse 41, it says, Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So with Jairus, we get somebody who is a pretty important person in the nation of Israel. The synagogue was not just the religious center of Jewish life, but it really was the center of Jewish life because their religious life was highly integrated into all things that they did. So to be a synagogue leader was to be a very important person. It probably meant that he was involved in either the organization of the activities of the synagogue, or maybe at different times he was even one of the people who was up front at the gatherings. Either way, what we've got here is we've got somebody with status. You've got somebody that probably has some discretionary income. You've got somebody who's considered to be an important person, and yet we have somebody who is brought to his knees before Jesus. And a, a little bit of speculation here. When Jairus' daughter got sick, do you think the very first thing he did is run to find a healer? Probably not. He probably has tried a whole bunch of stuff. He probably has brought the doctors in. They probably have tried some different medicines and some different things. He has resources at his disposal, but he's at the point that his daughter is not only sick, but she's dying, and he needs Jesus to come and do something about it. So he comes to Jesus about this. Jesus apparently agrees to go because the rest of verse 42, it says, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. In fact, Matthew and Mark both tell this story also, this combination of stories. When they talk about this woman, they add in the detail that she had spent all of her money on treatments, and nothing had been able to help her. And Luke doesn't get incredibly specific with her problem, but it talks about she's, she's experienced bleeding most likely, this not only was a source of great pain and discomfort for her, but because of different Jewish ceremonial laws, this probably was also something that made her ritually unclean, and therefore she wasn't able to really participate in the life of her community. And, and here's why this is important. Just take this in right here. We're just getting the setup here. There's been no amazing healing that's happened yet, but we have two people who desperately need Jesus to do something for them. The first person has money and has prominence. The second person is out of money and probably is an outsider even within the community. But there's an equalizer. And the equalizer is that when it's dark, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you still can't see. The darkness envelops all of us just the same. And there's probably some of you here that you're just like, this is a Christmas sermon. Can <laughs> we talk about lights and nice stuff and be happy? Some of you, though, you are really in the midst of darkness right now. And when I say darkness, what, what I really mean is you're in the midst of uncertainty right now. 
And it might even be an uncertainty that that's not terribly personal. You're just looking at the world or you're looking at our nation and you find yourself really anxious and feeling like, I I don't know where things are going to go. I don't know how things are going to work. I don't know about the future. Maybe you're discouraged about some things that are going on just in the wider world of Christianity. And you're looking at things and you're saying, well, gosh, I, I don't know if the next generation is embracing Jesus in the same way that their parents did. And you're concerned about the future and you're experiencing that uncertainty. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's future decisions about college. Maybe it's a relationship that's up in the air right now. We all deal with uncertainty. And whether you're rich or poor, whether you have a lot of money or a little money, whether you have a lot of prominence or a little prominence, both Jairus and this woman are brought to their knees before Jesus. They're both desperate for him, and he is their only hope. And so with what comes next, we get to look at how Jesus intervenes. And so we start with healing number one, miracle number one. Verse 44, speaking of this woman who had the flow of blood, says she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Now, for Jewish men, there was a prayer shawl that they would have to wear underneath their outer clothing. And at the end of the prayer shawl, there would be little tassels that would hang down. That's almost certainly what's being talked about here, that this woman is looking at it, and she's decided, I'm not going to stop Jesus and asked for a healing. And it may have just been because she was shy. It may have been because, you know, I'm ritually unclean, so if people see me, they're going to ask me to leave. It may have been because she knew he was on the way to heal Jairus' daughter, and she didn't want to slow him down. Whatever the reason, she thinks, you know what, I don't want to stop him, but I bet if I just touch that tassel, if I just get close, Jesus has such power that if I just touch the tassel of his cloak, that'll be enough. And the amazing thing is, she's right. Verse 44 says, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Twelve years, no doctor's able to do anything. A touch on the tassel of Jesus' cloak and she's immediately healed. And, and by the way, just because some of our minds go, go wild at this stuff, some of you might be saying, well, so did everybody who brushed up against Jesus have this happen? Were there other people at this moment that had a cold and they were like, oops, sorry. Oh, <laughs> I feel great now. And the answer is probably not. This was a healing that happened, and you're going to see later on when when you see what Jesus says to this woman, this was a healing that happened, and there was an intentional act on the part of this woman. There was an act of faith of her saying, you know what, I bet Jesus is so powerful that I don't even have to stop him. He doesn't even need to know I'm there. He doesn't even need to make a choice. If I just touch the tassel of his cloak, I bet I'm going to be healed. And she was immediately. And at this point, she probably thought, perfect, I'm going to just slip out of here the same way I slipped in. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to have a priest declare me clean. My life is going to be much better. I'm just going to get out of the way as easily as I got in. Unfortunately for her, verse 45, Jesus says, who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter, one of the 12, says, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Now, Peter doesn't just come out and super overtly say what he's thinking, but we all kind of know what he's thinking here. You ever been in a really, really crowded place? You ever been on public transportation when it gets really crowded? Remember this summer after I graduated college, I went to Russia with with a couple friends. We went for an extended mission trip. 
And uh, I remember using a bus there one time where it was so utterly crowded. I just, I wasn't sure of the physics of how this was happening. And then every time the bus would stop, more people would somehow get on without people getting off. I don't, I don't know how it was working. It seemed like a physical impossibility. And things are so stuffed to the point that you're just sort of like this. Your arms, you no longer have any use of your arms. They're, they're way down here. You're just shoulder to shoulder with people. If you're in a situation like that and somebody yells out, hey, who touched me? You're going to say, everybody. Everybody, what a stupid question. Everybody touched you. We are so stuffed in there. How in the world can you ask, who touched me? That's how Peter is responding here. He's saying, really, master? Everybody touched you. They're crowding in. Everybody's trying to get close. They're excited to see you. Everybody's pressing in on you. And yet Jesus says in verse 46, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. So there's some sense that Jesus has that he knows somebody just got healing. Power just went out from him when this happens. So Jesus stops everything so that they can deal with this. Now, if you look back up um, at verse 45, it says, when they all denied it, Jesus says, who touched me? And when they all denied it. Now, this could mean that they personally interrogated everyone. Probably just means that Jesus said, who touched me? And maybe some of the apostles got in on it and they said, Jesus wants to know who touched him. (laughs) Nobody comes forward, including this woman. This doesn't mean she overtly said, I didn't touch you, but she at the very least was like, I'm not going forward. But Jesus isn't letting it go. We don't know how long this took, but probably not just the few seconds that it takes us to read these verses. Everything stopped everyone stopped and an interrogation is happening to solve this mystery of who touched Jesus and got the healing. And verse 47 says, then the woman seen that she could not go unnoticed. And again, I got to say, she probably could have gone unnoticed. What I'm guessing that Luke means here is he's saying she couldn't go unnoticed without lying about it. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Now, what emotion goes along with trembling? Fear. Yeah, crying too. Fear is what's going on here. She is terrified. And we can probably put the pieces together and guess why she's terrified. She just stole a healing. (laughs) This wasn't authorized. She didn't stop and ask permission, Jesus, I really need to be healed. That was the normal way these things work. If you read the gospel, somebody comes up to Jesus, says, will you please heal me? And he says, yes, and he heals them. She didn't do any of that. She was really sneaky about it. Snuck in, just going to touch that and be on my way. (laughs) Everything's stopping and she's going forward with a stolen healing to fess up. And in all seriousness, The fact that she's going up trembling, what is she probably assuming is about to happen? She's just going to take this right back. I didn't say I was going to heal you. That's not the way things work. You're healed. I hope you enjoyed those four minutes. (laughs) It's coming right back. She is terrified of what's about to happen, but she chooses to go for it. It says, in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Isn't that striking? She not only says it was me, she says, here's why I did it. Well, they said, the reason I did it is because I thought if I just touched the tassel of your cloak, that was going to be enough to heal me. And she says, and it was. Verse 48, 
I just imagine the joy and relief that must have come over her when she hears Jesus say this. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And the Hebrew word he probably said right at the end with go in peace was shalom. The Hebrew word for peace that you say to somebody when you're parting from them. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has healed you. And again, look at both things. Look at the staggering power of Jesus. That's all it took, a touch of the tassel of his cloak. But also just think of the amazing faith that's going on here with this woman. I bet he has enough power that that's all I need. All I need to do is get close to him. All I need to do is touch the tassel. I bet that will be enough. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, now I don't usually like to, to get into the Greek because it makes me sound like a nerd. But, but I got to do it here because Luke does something here that I think is intentional. I, I just don't think there's any way around it. There's different Greek words he could have used for the word healed here. But the word that he uses is the word that normally is translated saved. Your faith has saved you. And it can be used kind of in the physical sense, but it's used in the spiritual sense all throughout Scripture. Not, not just to refer to the idea of you were in a burning building and somebody saved you, but you were dead in your sins. You were guilty before God. You were lost and alone, and God saved you. I don't think it's any accident. I think that Luke is pointing here towards a greater reality. He's allowing this woman to be a sort of parable for all of us on what faith does and how faith is our entrance into the family of God. When he paused to think about it with this woman, she got healed. She got saved. And it wasn't because she did something super heroic. It wasn't because she made some vow to do a whole bunch of things for God. It wasn't because she was super moral. It wasn't because she did a whole bunch of things that impressed people. All she did was reach out. And it's important for us to remember that when it comes to how we get forgiven of our sins, how we get adopted into the family of God, how we get the hope for heaven, it's not because we do something heroic for God. It's not because we make a bunch of promises about how good we're going to be. It's not because we live more morally than the people around us. The way that we get into the family of God, the way that we get forgiven of our sins is in our utter desperation. When we tried everything and nothing else is able to fix us, in desperation and faith, we just reach out. Faith is in many ways a desperate reach for God to do something for us. And just as this woman experienced Jesus healing her, when we have the desperate reach of faith for God, God is all too happy to wipe us clean. All too happy to forgive all of our sins. When we throw ourselves at his mercy, we experience that we're not only healed physically, but we are saved forever. You know, I, I know Chris, Christmas time, um, the, there's a lot of people that come around to church services at Christmas time that don't normally come around to church services. And some of you might be in that category. You're like, all right, yeah, Sunday right before Christmas, I'll, I'll be happy to go. Um, and you might even be thinking, hey, Christmas, Christmas time, it's a good time to be thinking about Jesus. It's a good time to be thinking about the fact that Jesus is at the center of the celebration. Um, maybe you're even thinking, I, I probably should be better. I probably should be more generous and be more moral. And, and so those are some of the things going through your mind. So you're like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go to a church service. And if that's what's brought you here, I, I'm super glad you're here. 
but I don't want you to leave thinking that the Christian message is, think about Christmas more and try to be better this year. What I want you to know is that Jesus' birth either matters all the time or not at all. Jesus' birth doesn't suddenly matter at Christmas time. This is why when I've been talking to some people this Christmas season, and they've been like, gosh, I just really, you know, the kids are kind of focused on presents, and I'm concerned because I really want them to be focused on Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, Jesus is better than presents. Maybe it's okay if one day a year they're focused on presents. What's going on the entire rest of the year? Do you know that December 21st, 25th is not the only day that you can celebrate Jesus during the year? I don't think, in the end, the main question that God is going to have for all of us is, well, how did your Christmas celebration go? (laughs) Jesus' birth either matters all the time or it doesn't matter at all. And so again, if you're coming and you're saying, gosh, I, I feel like I should pay some attention to Jesus, it's Christmas time, and I feel like I should be a better person, I just want to plead with you, please know that the invitation that you get from Jesus is not try to be a better person. The invitation that you get from Jesus is if you desperately reach out with faith to him, he will wipe you clean from all of your sins. He will adopt you into the family and he will promise you eternal life. And not only that, he will be with you always. And for those of us who are, who've walked that walk of faith, who have come in that desperate moment, and we have been rescued, it's important that we remember so that none of us in any way become arrogant thinking that we somehow are better than others around us. If you are part of the family of God, the only reason you're part of the family of God is that when you desperately reached out with faith, God saved you. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. But you guys, there was something else going on in this story, right? There's something else. That's right, Jairus. Let's get back to Jairus for a moment. By the way, what is Jairus thinking while all this is going on? I know they didn't have watches back then, but he's like, like, but what are we doing? What are we doing right now? Remember my dying daughter? Maybe you can sort this out later. Nobody wants to, if somebody got healed, I guess that's good. They got healed. Why are we pausing for all of this? I got to imagine whether he said anything or not, the panic must have been supreme. He got Jesus on board to come and do the healing, but now Jesus is pausing to sort out a mystery on the streets. And while this is going on, it says, while Jesus was still speaking, speaking to the woman, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And now the worst nightmare has overwhelmed Jairus. I had Jesus. He was probably going to do it. He probably has the power to do it. We were on our way, but we got held up. And because we got held up, now my daughter is dead. And he was probably thinking the same thing that his friend here says, don't bother the teacher anymore. And what he means by don't bother the teacher anymore is maybe Jesus could have done something while she was dying. Now she was dead. There's nothing that can be done don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. And again, this may have happened really quickly. We're going to see in a second in verse 50 how Jesus responds. This may have happened really quickly, but I just want us to get into the mind of Jairus right now and think about the bitterness of the grief over this. Not only the grief over a lost child, but the grief over the lost opportunity because Jesus delayed. Have you ever been frustrated with God for delaying something? 
Probably you have. There are times where we look at what's going on. We say, God, what is going on? What is the holdup? What is the delay? Why are things not progressing the way that they seem like they should? And maybe it's because we're getting ourselves to the point that we're thinking, there's a clock on this, and if God doesn't act by this time, it'll be too late. Even death doesn't stop the power of Jesus. And so I want you to look at Jesus' response to Jairus because he hears this conversation going on. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. Don't be afraid, just believe. Let's highlight that for a minute. Don't be afraid. Talked about this a, a couple weeks ago. Don't be afraid, or some version of don't be afraid, is the most frequently given command in the Bible. 365 times in the Bible, do not be afraid. Jairus right now has a lot of reasons to be afraid. He has a lot of uncertainty. What am I going to do in life without my daughter? What am I going to do? How am I going to explain this to people? How am I going to live in this reality? How am I going to reckon with what I think of Jesus now that he hasn't done what I asked him to do? There's a lot of fear coming at Jairus right now. Jesus says, Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. So we got into this passage. I, I asked you to focus in on two things. Focus in on the staggering power of Jesus and focus in on the role that faith plays in both of these stories. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Faith is how we get into the family of God. But what Jesus is demonstrating through Jairus here is that faith is not only how we get into the family of God, faith is how we now walk with God. We walk with the light of the world, and we understand a lot more than we did about the future now that we're walking with Jesus, but there's still a lot of darkness, and there's still a lot of confusion. There's still a lot of uncertainty, and there's still a lot of questions. Jesus says, don't be afraid just believe. And by the way, in, in English, I know we separate out a lot of these words. We separate out belief and faith and trust. Um, in the Greek, all the same word. Belief is faith. Faith is trust. So I think in many ways, what Jesus is pointing Jairus to here is that our faith is not ultimately placed in just a set of ideas. Our faith is placed in the promises of God, but even more than that, our faith is placed in the person of God. I think a way to paraphrase what Jesus is saying to Jairus right here is, don't be afraid, trust me. We're going to go figure this out. And he says something at the end there. The third thing that he says is, and she will be healed. He lets her know he's still going to go through with this. And I thought, I want to take a pause right here and just take this in. Because we know what's going to happen in this story. We've already read it. Jesus is going to raise up this girl. We know that this ends in celebration and joy because of the healing that Jesus brings. But we also all know from our lives that there are times that we are earnestly praying for healing from God and he doesn't grant it. And then there's other times that we're earnestly praying for healing from God and he does grant it. And there's miraculous things that we rejoice in, but there's other times where he doesn't answer those prayers in the way that we want. And, and there's darkness in that. There's confusion in that. Why does it seem to be arbitrary? Why are sometimes God saying yes? Why is sometimes he's saying no? What is the rhyme or reason of this? And how does this play in to the idea that we can trust God? And before I say anything else, I just want to say, I am not adequate to the task of trying to explain how all of this works. And so I'm not going to pretend to be. Um, but what I do want to say is I think that there are reasons why we can trust God even in the darkness. 
Now, at the base level, I think what we see in Scripture is there are times where God puts His glory on display through miraculous healing. He draws attention to Himself by doing something miraculous, and people give Him glory for it. And then what also seems clear in Scripture is that there are times that God draws attention to Himself by sustaining His people through grief and suffering. We don't always know which is which, and it can be frustrating to live in that uncertainty. But let me just give you an analogy. It's not a perfect one, but I want you to follow me on this. Let's say you are deep in debt. Um, Some of you don't even have to imagine. You're like, okay, I'm there. (laughs) You are deep in debt. You are so deep in debt that you're never going to get out of debt. It's just hanging over you all the time. You're deep, deep in debt. And then some kind person comes to you and says, I'm paying off all your debt. I'm taking it all away. I'm paying off every bit of your debt. Not only that, but if in the future you accrue any more debt, I'm already promising to pay that off also. I'm paying off all your debt in the past, in the present, and in the future. And not only that, but if you get into any money problems along the way, feel free to call. Feel free to call and ask for help. And you live in that, and you live in that reality, all of your debt is taken away, all of the debt is forgiven, future debt is taken care of, and from time to time, you call this person, and you ask them for money when you're in money problems. And sometimes, he says, absolutely, the check is on its way. And other times, he says, I'm sorry, not this time. When you get the, I'm sorry, not this time, that's probably frustrating, which is understandable. It's probably confusing, which is understandable. But what I just want to suggest is what you probably shouldn't do, what probably is not reasonable to do, is to say, because he said no this time, he just doesn't care. You know why? He has already forgiven all of your debt. He has proven that he cares. He's proven that he's interested. And I want us just to take this in. I I don't want us to diminish any way the pain that goes through the unanswered prayers when we're praying for God to do something miraculous and he doesn't do what we ask him to do. That's painful and that's confusing. And at the same time, if you're saying, well, because of that, I don't know if I can trust God. I want to point you back to the fact that he has paid your debt. Your eternity is taken care of. Death doesn't get the final word on you. You are forgiven of everything. You are his child. You have eternal life to look forward to. So maybe even in the darkness, you can still trust him, even when you're not sure what he's doing. We'll come back to this in a minute, but but let's look at what unfolds as Jairus decides to take Jesus up on this and trust him. It says, when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They all laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And the reason I think verse 53 is in there is because Luke doesn't want there to be any confusion about what's going on here. You could read Jesus' words in in verse 52, and you could say, oh, well, well, maybe what went on is she slipped into a coma, and they thought that she was dead, and then Jesus revived her. After all, Jesus says she's not dead, but she's asleep. Luke makes it absolutely plain in verse 53, no, she's dead. Jesus knows, by the way, Jesus knows that she's dead. He's not confused about the situation. He says something very similar right before he raises Lazarus from the dead about him being asleep. He's not confused about what's going on. What he's saying is he is soon going to be awakened. That's why even in the New Testament, Christians who have died are referred to as those who have fallen asleep because we're awaiting our final resurrection. 
Jesus says, she's not dead, but asleep. They mock him for this. But in verse 54, it says, he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. I just want to pause here again for a minute. Um, When it comes to trust, at the core of our trust has to be two things with God. Has to be, number one, he actually can do the impossible. And number two, he really does care about me. Jesus heals the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He raises the girl from the dead. We see the power. Does he really care about these people? Three interactions that Jesus has just in this passage. Interaction number one, daughter, your faith has healed you. Interaction number two with Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Interaction number three, my child, get up. Just hear those words again. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Don't be afraid, just believe. My child, get up. Do those sound like the words of somebody who cares deeply? Man, these words are so affectionate. They're so personal. There's no moment of your life, no trial that you're going through, no darkness that you're in the middle of where God is not deeply affectionate towards you. My child, get up. Verse 55 says, her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, understandably, Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. And that last statement right there, man, that's a whole other sermon that we could just get into. Why in the world is Jesus stopping everything with this woman and trying to figure out who she was so that everybody knows that a miracle happened? And on the other hand, why is he raising this girl from the dead and then telling the parents, don't go spread the word about this? There are many times that Jesus does this. Sometimes he says to people, go tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And other times he says, don't spread the word about this one. Again, I'm not up to the task of sorting out all the ins and outs, but part of what is that the reason for Jesus sometimes withholding this is that Jesus knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that miracles are not a guarantee of a person's faith. Jesus condemns the city of Capernaum because he says, I did more miracles here than anywhere else and you still don't believe. You ever prayed out to God and said, God, if you just did this one thing, I would never doubt again. You probably have. You will doubt again. Don't rely simply on the miraculous. The miraculous points us towards the care of God, and it points us towards the power of God. Don't put too much stock in thinking, if I just saw the miracle, I would always believe. Jesus at times is saying, don't tell anybody about this, because even if they hear about this, it won't make a difference. Let me come back to those words that he gave to Jairus. Don't be afraid, just believe. We are invited, first of all, we are invited to place our faith in Jesus, to desperately reach out in faith so that we're brought into the family of God, and then we're also invited day in, day out to walk in a way that we respond to Jesus' invitation where he says, don't be afraid, just trust me. Just trust me even though you're not sure what's going on with your job. Just trust me, even though being forgiving and being kind doesn't seem to be working in your marriage right now, and you kind of feel like you're being taken advantage of. Just trust me, even though you're not quite sure what the future is going to hold with your work, or just trust me, even though you're not quite sure what's going to happen with your health. You're not quite sure what's going to happen with family relations. You don't know what Christmas is going to be like. It might blow up, or it might be really nice. Just trust me, even in the uncertainty. And trusting him means not only that we walk in the peace and that we bring our anxieties to him, but it also means that when alternate routes are given to us, 
that would lead us into sin or rebellion in order to try to solve our own problems. We say no thank you to those, and we continue to walk in trust of the God who not only has the power to raise the dead, but the God who shows his deep and abiding care for all of us. And one of the things that we get to do to celebrate that is is what we're about to do in a moment as we prepare to take communion together as a church family. And if you're going to be helping out with the communion serving, you can head to the back right now as we prepare for this. When we celebrate communion, I, I just want to take a minute on this because when we celebrate communion, we're not celebrating something that we believe has magical power And we're not celebrating something that we believe is some kind of uh, spiritual ritual or rite of passage. What we are doing is we are doing a physical act to remember a spiritual reality. We're doing a physical act to remember that Jesus, on the night that he ended up being betrayed, gathered with his disciples and showed them a symbol of the sacrifice that he would make. This bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood shed for you. The little baby who was placed in a manger grew up to be a man who gave his life for the sins of the world. And what I want to invite you to do is a couple things. To first of all say, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus, um, this is not something that has some spiritual mystical power for you. So just go ahead and let the, uh, the elements pass by. Nobody's going to give you dirty looks. Just go ahead and do that. And if you are a believer in Jesus, And as we get ready to take these elements, what I want to invite you to do is to not only take this as a time to celebrate and remember the great sacrifice of Jesus that shows his love for us, but also to take this as a time to put your faith in him anew, to remember that you live only because you're feeding on him, and to renew your trust to walk with him in the darkness. Let me pray for us as we prepare. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you've poured out in Jesus. Thank you for your deep love. Thank you for your staggering power to even raise the dead. I pray that you lead us to trust you deeply. I pray that you lead us to entrust ourselves to you. I pray that you receive honor right now, and I pray that we receive the help that we need from you so that we can walk in faith as you being the true Savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.